How do you go from a company on the brink of bankruptcy during the Great Recession to a multi-billion dollar turnaround three years later? The CEO of that company gives us his secret sauce right now. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to episode 81 of the Love in Action podcast, where we help make your business and workplace be both good for people and for profits. If you're a CEO, these are extraordinary difficult times for you. We're still in crisis mode and and lots of companies just have not been able to survive the pandemic. I've been trying my best here to give you as much insight and advice and encouragement and inspiration to my executive listeners because I feel for you. So that's why I do this. I bring in these guests to help you during this pandemic because I can't imagine what you're going through right now. So my heart goes out to every single one of you leaders out there, especially those lone CEOs leading their companies under such immense stress and anxiety. And that's also why I'm thrilled about my guest today. I think he's going to be a shining light on a hill for a lot of CEOs and founders listening in. Walt Rakowicz joins me today to share his story about how his previous company, Prologis, survived the Great Recession of 2008 by transforming his company culture. And the lessons you're gonna hear from Walt are urgently needed during this pandemic. Now, I'm just gonna say this, because I want Walt to tell it himself, but if your company is underperforming right now, Walt turned around a company on the brink of bankruptcy in 2008. So for you uh, post-millennials and and Generation Zers, or as I guess you're all called Zoomers now, for those of you listening in that age group, you think things are bad now? Google the Great Recession of 2008 and you'll see what I mean. Those were also extremely tough times. And as CEO, Walt achieved a multi-billion dollar turnaround with an approach he calls transformative influence. And now he shares this practice with today's challenged leaders in his timely new book, Transfluence, How to Lead with Transformative Influence in Today's Climates of Change. Walt, welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Marcel, it's such a pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me this morning. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this one. And as is tradition on the show, we always start with a gratitude moment. And that is what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days. Oh, that's great. I would say I'm most grateful really for the love and the support of those around me. I mean, I'm just surrounded. I've been blessed to be surrounded by great people. I have a great family. I have a great wife. I have just absolutely terrific friends and a lot of them. And I have my loving God, I have to say that, and I have a deep faith. And so, you know, I'm just surrounded by so many blessings, really. And I get up in the morning every morning, and and notwithstanding the fact that we have a difficult time ahead of us at this point, I pinch myself because I'm just blessed by so many great people, friends, everything around me. Yeah, that speaks to community and how we all, we're all in this together, Walt, and that we have to huddle together. And so I appreciate that. I echo a lot of those sentiments myself. So let's dive into this book. And I always like to skim the surface first. Why, why this book? Why now? Well, first of all, I would say that, Marcel, you know, our world has been shaped over the years through leadership, both good, both good and bad, unfortunately. Sometimes it's not always good. And um, really, through, you know, throughout my life, I, I've tried to become a student of leadership, you know, learn how I can become better at what I do and, and, and frankly impact the world in a positive way. I, I was listening to some of your prior, prior podcasts and uh, one of them was a, was a guest that you had on, Jim Kuzaz, who I guess was the uh, Executive Fellow of Leadership at Santa Clara University. Right. 
And, you know, he said something that was really profound. He said, adversity is the opportunity for greatness. I truly believe that. And, you know, look, I, first of all, I would just, if you go backward just a little bit, I was uh, blessed with unbelievable parents. You know, they taught me the value of leadership. My, they're really hardworking people. Um, and, but they were, you know, they were really appreciative of people who, they were just appreciative of people for who they were, not what they had not what even they had accomplished. And I think that had great impact on me. And so why this book now, I think it's, I think we're in very, very difficult times. I went through a crucible moment and I'm happy to talk a little bit about that crucible moment. And I think we're in a crisis right now. I mean, I think the world is going through a real difficult time where leadership matters. And hopefully this book will impart the wisdom on others that at least I went through in a crucible moment because they're going through in crucible moments right now. Right, right. Okay, you've mentioned it enough. So let's talk about that crucible moment. Before we get into the, the book's concepts and the framework I had in mind to kind of guide us along, specifically, and maybe this is part of your crucible moment, Well, tell me if this resonates with you. I want to hear about the story about what did you walk into when you took over Prologis. I mean, and, and really, why would someone accept the position of a CEO, you know, in midst of a, a great recession? Good question, because I was asking myself the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me just give you the context behind it. I, I had worked for the company for leading up to the great recession of 2008. I had worked for the company for about close to 15 years, maybe a little under that. And I had gone from being a regional manager to ultimately the, the company's chief financial officer and then to the president chief operating officer, okay, over that period of time. And we were a darling on Wall Street during those the first 14, 15 years of my career. I mean, the, I think we had given shareholders roughly a 20% return on their invested capital, original invested capital, dividend, share price appreciation, and everything was going pretty well. But Marcel, from the outside looking in, it looked great. From the inside looking out, in really 2006, seven, it wasn't looking so good. And I was sitting there as the number two person in the company, president and chief operating officer. And I had reported to the CEO of the company. Both of us were on the board. And I got to tell you, the CEO was one of the most brilliant people you ever meet in your life. But brilliance is only part of leadership. The real part of leadership is how you manage people. And our culture was changing. It was getting worse. Our stock price was going up, but it felt really weird internally. I mean, I, I had a boss that believed he was always right. I had a boss who paid little attention to what others had to say, didn't listen all that much. And as a result of that, sort of almost narcissistic tendencies, we were operating in a vacuum and we were making really poor business decisions. We were overpaying for assets. We weren't communicating internally. We were operating in silos in the organization because people were worried about what the CEO would say if he didn't agree with what they had to say. And we lacked discipline. I mean, there was very little delegation. I mean, just all kinds of weird, you know. So anyway, I went to the board of directors in late 2007 and I said, guys, I can't operate here anymore. I just can't, you know, and I think it's the time for, best time for me to exit stage left. And they tried to get me and the CEO to kiss and make up, and it just wasn't going to happen. I mean, I couldn't work underneath of them. And so I left the company in January 2008. And just to put things into context, our stock price was at about $72 a share, which equated to a market capitalization of about 20, $20 to $22 billion. I left. And of course, 2008 was a tough year for everybody. The S&P 500 was down probably 40% that year. But there I stood. I sat in my house just watching the stock price go down from 70 to 60 to 50 to 40. And all of a sudden, in the beginning of November, it hit $5 a share. And we were the third worst performing stock in the S&P 500. Wow. And the board called me up and said, you were right. We have problems and we're, we're going to let go of the CEO and we'd like you to come back and run the company. And that's where my answer to your original question was why. And I, I still wonder, I got to tell you, I looked at myself and, and candidly, I looked at myself in the mirror and I didn't think I had the chops to do it. I was like, you know, 
I'm not built for this. And they said, well, yes, you are. We need you to come back and turn this thing around. And after I asked them, how long do I have? And they said, 24 hours. <laughs> and so the next day I got back to them and I, you know, honestly, I, candidly, I looked at all the people there I had hired over the years. And although on one hand, I knew it would take a Herculean effort and I was scared to death to come back and lead it because, you know, you go into bankruptcy, that's a two or three year period of time out of your life and brain damage. And, but our people just lack so much confidence and I just couldn't let the company go. And so I decided to come back and, and that was the beginning of Transfluence. And wow. And that's what I was telling you before, you know, when your guest talked about crucible moments, he talked about them being your greatest opportunity. And I truly believe that you learn the most about leadership during the difficult times. That yeah. certainly was the case for me. Yeah. Okay. So let's put some meaning behind transformative influence, especially during, a, like you said, you know, a time of crisis. And there's no better time than now to kind of spell out what it took for you in the time of crisis and what does it take for those of us in those same positions in a time of crisis. And you have this framework that I just want to kind of give us the overview of that framework that you found. And how did you come to that understanding and, and that discovery that, hey, this is what it's going to take to flip this culture around? Yeah. Well, first of all, the, let me tell you what it's about. Transfluence, the name of the book, is short for transformative influence. I think as a leader, you've got a lot of objectives. Some of them are financial. In my case, Walt, turn around the company, <laughs> you know, become profitable. You know, other leaders might be make earnings this quarter, whatever it is. That's sort of the destination, right? I've came to find out that it's not really about the destination. That's the marker maybe, but your most important thing that you can do is the influence you have on other people. You want to lead and you want to get to your destination. It's all about the journey. And I came to believe that it starts with the understanding that it's not about you. Too many leaders tend to focus on themselves. Quite frankly, I wondered day one if I had the chops to do it. I wondered day two, how do I turn around the company, right? I mean, that's the first thing that you think about. The fact of the matter is, it's not do I have the chops to do it, it's, it's does everybody else around me have the chops to do it? And it's not how do I turn around the company, it's how do I work with other people and in essence, elevate them to turn around the company. And so it's much more about, not the destiny, destiny, but it's about, it's about the journey of getting there. And that journey, the most important thing you can remember is it's not about you. It is about the influence you have on other people. And I think what that boils down to is this whole notion of trust. I think if leaders can establish trust in organizations with their people, I think they can accomplish a lot. And you asked me about transplants, so I'm just going to unpack it just a little bit more. So when we, my team and I came up with the word transfluence, which was really transformative influence, we looked it up in the dictionary. And as it turns out, there is no word transfluence, but there is a word called transfluent. And transfluent means something kind of flowing through, almost like water would flow past you, okay? And we talk about in the book that transfluence is actually something very similar because it needs to flow through the heart of a leader. And I truly believe it's about establishing trust in your organization. It's about coming to the realization that it's not about you. And if you can get there personally, I think you can begin to manage people. You can begin to build trust in your, the trust that you need in your organization to turn it around or to operate in a crisis or quite frankly, to operate in good times. Yeah, yeah. One of those building blocks of trust that you cover in the book is overcoming fears and pride. And I, I would love to drill down into those specifically while I want you to help us name our fears, the kind of fears that destroy trust and really cripple our influence. What are some of them that leaders listening right now might be facing? Well, great question. So just to put an exclamation point on what you said, I really believe this notion of it not being about you is dealing with the things that hold you back. The things in my mind that hold leaders back are pride and fear. 
I mean, it's really simple. And by the way, you never completely get over it. I mean, I still deal with it today. I mean, every day I wake up, wake up there's an insecurity that I have, or there's something prideful that I've got to be aware of. So this is not something that, well, this is step one. You, once you get over this, you can. Partially it's that, but the fact is you got to fight this, these demons every single day. So as regards to your specific question, there was an article, and I write about this in my book written by Roger Jones, and it was highlighted in Harvard Business Review. And he interviewed over 115 C-suite executives. First of all, the article is called What Are CEOs Afraid Of?, which is a bit of a misnomer because they, didn't just, they just didn't talk to CEOs. They talked to leaders, period. C-suite executives, leaders all throughout the company, companies. A lot of these leaders were in Europe. Some of them were in Asia, some in the U.S., they interviewed them and they said, what are your biggest fears? And this is going to address the specific question I think that you asked me. And, you know, you would have thought, well, you know, they would have said, well, it's my competition or it's my financial condition, or perhaps for most leaders, it's the exodus of good people in my company. You know, no, that wasn't the number one fear. The number one fear was actually incompetence. And by the way, I just said it a minute ago, I was worried that I didn't have the chops to turn it around, okay? So incompetence, what does that mean? It's a fear of being wrong, fear of not having the chops to get it done. Let me tell you, you look around, leaders have this insecurity, you know? And the CEOs in the article talked about how it undermined their relationships with other people. In some cases, it made them more dictatorial because they're worried that they're, they're, they're going to be wrong. And so they're going to pound the table and say, no, no, I'm right. They cover up that insecurity. You know, and so that's one thing. Another, the second fear was the fear of underachievement. Also, by the way, just notice these are both about the leaders. They're not about their organization. They're about the leaders. So this, this whole notion of underachievement, it's kind of this fear of not doing enough. Like my competition's going to do more or like somebody else in the organization is going to beat me out. Okay. Whatever it might be, you know, talks in the article about how it led to a lack of discipline because, okay, well, if my competition's going to beat me, I got to beat them to the punch and buy this building, or I get, in my case, real estate, or I've got to make this sale. I've got to cut my margins or whatever it might be. It leads into to a lack of discipline, often cases, and ultimately profitability. And I'll just go through the third one real quick, which I thought was humorous, and that was the fear of appearing too vulnerable. Again, all about the leader fear of not being important, fear of getting unseated from their job. And that caused leaders to not delegate, to hoard, to keep things to themselves. You see, so all of these fears are, are really, and incidentally, I also say in my book, there's some fear that is good. Like, you know, Taylor Swift, before she gets on stage, she says, I fear the 15,000 people that are out there every, you know, I just fear because I don't want to make a mistake. And and it actually causes me to perform better. I get that. But what's the, the problem is, is when fear gets to insecurity and you mess up and you begin to make mistakes. And I just think the difficulty is it becomes about you. And you got to really be careful that you don't let these things bring you down because all the people that work for you notice and they get turned off with that self-absorption. And it becomes very, very difficult to influence them and manage them. Yeah, yeah. So I want you to speak from the heart here because I want to make sure that this story is real as it's not just here's a survey from a, a research of 115 executives, but you experienced some of these things, some of these fears. You mentioned already incompetence, right? So a moment of, of reality here for us is you were a CEO and, you know, sometimes we see CEOs as a hero figure, the cape blowing in the wind, right? Yep. But talk to us about a little bit about what fear did to you, whether it was emotionally, uh, I don't know, physically, uh, in your personal life, at home, et cetera. So there's one story that really comes to my mind. And that was that, you know, when I first came back to the company, I was running around like a chicken with my head cut off. Okay. And what was going through my mind was, oh my God, what happens if I don't turn this company around? Again, it's all about me, right? But don't get me wrong. I, I, th that fear was genuine. 
but it, let me tell you what it caused me to do. So anyway, I, and we had a little bit of a dismiss. We had one of the best management. Te- I had one of the best management teams you can imagine in terms of smarts, brilliance, et cetera. But we, that team was dysfunctional when I first came back. And some of that had to do with the environment that they all had to operate in prior to me coming back. But in any case, I thought the best thing to do would be to hire a coach. So I hired a coach to coach the entire management team, roughly 10 people. And this coach came in and did extensive 360-degree evaluations of all of us and personality testing and the like, right? So my first meeting, I sat down with the coach and he said, well, let me tell you the good news and the bad news. And I said, okay, uh, tell me the good news first. <laughs> and he said, he said, the good news is people love working for you. I said, well, that's great. Can we stop there? <laughs> he said, no, no, you really need to know the bad news. And I said, okay, what's the bad news? He said, the bad news, Walt, is that you are running around like a chicken with your head cut off. And unfortunately, people notice that. And I can tell that you, you have a fear. Your fear is you may not make it. Your fear is you don't have the chops to do it. And he said, the problem is that some of your direct reports have said directly, they don't know how to approach you. They don't know how to come into your office and talk to you. Not because you'll, you'll shoo them out, but because they're worried you're too busy based on what you look like right now. You're too busy for them. I said, geez, oh man. And he said, you're, and bottom line is he summed it up by saying your empathy scores could be higher. Well, Marcel, that was like taking a dagger and putting it in my heart because I've always, I always viewed myself as a pretty good people person, at least I thought. And, but my direct reports were telling me something that was very critical. And I realized that I was putting too much burden on myself. I was like, you know, well, Walt, you've got to turn this company around. And I realized that it wasn't me turning around. It was all of them. And actually, it was undermining my relationships with everybody. And I needed to spend more time with people. I need to, needed to be a better CEO that was a better manager and not a doer. And um, my doing needed to be lifting people up emotionally and making them better at what they did. And they would come up with the answers. I didn't need to come up with the answers. And so that's a real life moment to me. And it was a seminal moment where I realized a lot about myself. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that from the heart. I appreciate that. We try to keep things very authentic here. And by the way, that survey that you mentioned in the book, I actually wrote down the most mentioned dysfunctional behaviors that result out of these fear traps, right? The, these so the, there are negative consequences. And here's, here are the ones that I captured from your book. I just wanted to read these out loud for my, my listeners. Allowing bad behavior at the next level down, failing to act unless there's a crisis, taking bad risks, being mistrustful and overcautious in relationships with coworkers. And then the last one I got was failing to speak up or have honest conversations. Any thoughts on those? Yeah, I mean, especially the last one. I feeling to have on uh, the the conversations you need to have i mean one of the problems that we had with the previous leaders of in our company was that those insecurities that he had would cause a lack of communication throughout the company and we had, did a 750 million dollar acquisition that everybody in the company thought there's no way it's worth more than 500 million and we got literally got it all the way to the board level because the CEO wanted to do it and didn't communicate to us because he just wanted to do the deal because he was worried that some other competitor would do it. And it took us getting all the way to the board before the board literally shot it down. And it made us all look bad as a management team because we hadn't communicated about it. I mean, that's a perfect example. And so, you know, when these insecurities and pride and fear really get in the way, people don't talk, it makes you look bad. Yeah. Speaking of pride, that's the other side of the coin here. And you say pride destroys good leadership. Tell us how pride does that. So again, just like fear, I do think that there's two different kinds of pride. There's good pride and there's bad pride. Like there's good fear and there's you know bad fear, a la Taylor Swift. So I talk about in the book, authentic pride. I, I think it's important that we be prideful of certain things in our life. Like, for example, I'm very proud of my kids. I'm proud of my relationship with my wife. You know, I'm proud of the fact that I work for a terrific organization with a great brand. 
that's authentic pride. And that pride is not really as much about you as much as it is the blessings you have in your life or the things that have been given to you. But I think where it gets really dangerous is when it gets into more hubristic pride. And I think that's a killer. And and when I talk about hubristic pride, I'm really referring to vanity. I'm referring to egotism. When you take a little bit of pride and it becomes more mostly about you and what you've done, talking about arrogance, you know, I'm talking about narcissism. And again, in some respects, I'm talking about my previous boss. And I fall into this trap myself too. But you know, in the book, we talk about some of the cases, you know, you look at what happened at the FIFA, the soccer organization at the top, right? Really driven by complete arrogance. Same thing with Volkswagen in the emission scandal. You know, to think that they were going to get away with that long-term and that they were going to profit more as a result of that is crazy. And you look at what's happened at Theranos, the, the, the blood testing company, you know, and to think that they were ultimately going to get away with a scam long-term, I mean, it's just crazy what certain leaders do and what pride will cause you to do. And I look at what happened to Prologis leading up to 2008 and that pride in the leadership and what ultimately it caused us to do. And those are really the things that I can think of. I mean, I just saw it firsthand. I, I think it destroys organizations. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is where it gets interesting to me, for me, uh, Walt. There's an antidote to leading through fear and pride and really taking down these kind of cultures, right? And I want to uncover how we as leaders can overcome fear and pride. That's really destroying our ability to lead well. And we will do that after this short message. Don't go anywhere. Hey, Love and Action Nation. It's Marcel here to tell you that I have just launched a virtual leadership development course. It's called From Boss to Leader. It's not just a course, but a real dynamic experiential journey. You're going to get videos plus live Q&A calls, a private Facebook community, and lots of support, action items, exercises, and tools to help you grow as a leader. And now I'm inviting you to participate as a beta group member. Since I'm testing this out, the beta group gets up to 60% off the normal price. And as a beta group member, you also get lifetime access to the final release of the course. If you're a manager or leader with people reporting to you and you want to learn more about this unique experience, text me right now at this number, 423-509-8415 and include the words interested in the beta group. Okay, we're back. So I'm excited to dive into this. You propose that in order to destroy the pride and the fear and set leaders up for success, leaders need to build what you call a strong microclimate. Hmm. Walk us through it. And what are the steps? (laughs) Well, there's a lot of steps. (laughs) (laughs) I do think, can let me just address this antidote to fear H.P. Lovecraft, which, you know, he's one of the most significant authors of horror fiction, you know, one time said that the oldest and the strongest emotion of a man is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is the fear of the unknown. It's kind of a bucket. What do you put into that unknown? And I think that I talk in the book about faith, and I talk about faith being the antidote to fear. And, you know, they both look into the future, but fear believes in a negative future. And faith believes in a positive future. It's really that simple. And, and when I started researching this and started thinking about it, I realized that really it's just a thought away. It's just a question of, you know, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? And I, you know, I talk about the book in the book that, you know, for me, and, and faith can be a lot of different things. It can be, in some case, people are, are immediately equated to religious faith, which it is for me, but I, I'm not just talking about that. I'm just talking about what do you put into that bucket? Are you positive about that bucket or are you always going to be negative? Because if you're always negative, unfortunately, you're going to get negative. And so I do. I think some of it is sort of what you put in the bucket. For me, it's putting faith in the bucket. It's putting a, a positive future into that bucket as well. I talk in the book a lot about almost opening, opening yourself a window into your soul. 
when I mean that, I mean openly and almost vulnerably being transparent. I think our world today, Marcel, demands transparency. We live in a more transparent world than it was 10 years ago and way more transparent than it was 20 and 25 years ago. And our world expects it. And so I think as leaders, in some respects, we have to be transparent. But in order to be transparent, it causes us to be vulnerable. We have to be vulnerable with ourselves because I think the expectations of leaders in this transparent environment are greater. We live in a world of glass houses where people can see everything we do. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. And if you're not willing to live with the bad as well as the good and be vulnerable, I think you're going to have problems. Um, yeah. And I want to transition to something else you mentioned in building this, you know, this microclimate. And that is, you refer to it as a 3H core. So the 3H core is humility, honesty, and heart. I want to start with humility. Why should we seek humility? Because you know what? That's really soft for a lot of people. (laughs) Sure is. (laughs) I don't think I put this in my book, but I do say it from time to time. And when you look at the word humility and you look it up in the dictionary, um, or these days on the internet, you'll see words like weak, and you'll see words like unassertive and submissive. And you look at that and you say, why in the world would I ever want to be that as a leader? <laughs> and, I, and by the way, if that's how you want to define it, you're right. I, I wouldn't want to be that either. I think real humility takes amazing amount of courage and confidence. It really does. And I think real humility is not about being weak. I think it's about recognizing you have weaknesses. And instead of covering them up, actually admitting them. And when you admit them, you're vulnerable about them. You actually defeat them. Admit them literally out loud to people, you know, not just to yourself, but to people. And I'm going to tell a quick story that hopefully drives us home if we have time. This is in the book. You know, we were, I was about a month, a month and a half into this job coming back as a CEO. And um, my finance people basically told me, well, we're going to blow our covenants and our bonds by next quarter. And I said, what does that mean? They said, we're going to, that means we're going to have to declare bankruptcy. And I got white as a ghost. And I said to them in this meeting, I said, you guys mind? I, I, I just need a glass of water or something. I, I need to leave the meeting. By the way, this is about one o'clock in the morning. And they said, no, that's fine, Walt. So I go down the hallway and I did faint. And as I was fainting, I, I saw a chair in the distance. I tried to get to the chair, didn't get there on time fell, hit my head on the corner of the desk, split my head open. I'm laying down in a pool of blood for about 10 minutes, have no idea where I am, completely knocked out. Wake back up, it's dark outside, don't know where I am. Finally, I figure out, oh my gosh, I know where I am. And there are 10 people waiting in this room for me to come back and they're still waiting. So after I get the bleeding to stop in the bathroom, I come back in the meeting and I look at everybody and I said, guys, let's talk about this bankruptcy issue. And they said, one of the guys said, oh no, Walt, let's talk about that lump on your head first. And I realized, oh my gosh, I'm just completely busted here. I said, I just want you guys to know I fainted. And CEOs aren't supposed to faint, but I fainted. And CEOs are supposed to have all the answers. And guess what? I don't. I don't know what to do. Like, I I can't believe we're going to, we are literally going to declare bankruptcy. Everybody looks around at me and they said, well, you know, Walt, after about 10 seconds, somebody said, you know, Walt, just give us a little time. Let us think about this. We'll come back with the answer. And I said, okay, that sounds great. And I realized that sometimes vulnerability can actually be very powerful. And in this case, it was because it empowered them to come, you know, it's really all, look, you know, as a leader, you realize you know less than the people you work for. You have to realize the more you move up in, in the world, the less you know. And the more your people who works for, work for you know more of the details than you do. And trust me, even if you're an entrepreneur, eventually you're going to turn over certain things to people and they're going to be closer to it than you. And the more you listen to them, vulnerably listen to them and recognize that, the better you're going to do. And incidentally, as an aside, that's the way you build trust in organizations. Mm power people. Okay. Be willing to be vulnerable. So when you talk about humility, when I talk about humility, I think it's actually a very powerful trait. Is it difficult? Heck yes, it's difficult. 
Does it move people? Because it's the most genuine bit of honesty you can ever see in somebody? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the second H in the three H core is honesty. I'm not going to touch too much on that because that's self-explanatory, right? That to me is is being able to display authenticity, is speaking your truth. What I really want to key in on is the third H, and that's heart, okay? Well, you call it heart, I call it love. We're kind of arriving in the same place, Walt. So what are the hallmarks of leading with heart or leading with love? And really, how did you do it? So I would call the hallmarks empowerment. I'd call it listening. I'd call another hallmark encouraging. I'd call another hallmark lifting up, giving, recognizing, giving people credit. Recognize, it's servant leadership. I talk in the book, can I just say this about the three, humility, honesty, and having a heart. The way I like to think about it, I call it 3H core. I think humility is a little bit of how you see yourself. I think heart is how you see others. And I think honesty is the transaction that connects the two together. And so when you talk about heart, how you see other people, it's putting them first. It's recognizing that you as a leader need to lift them up. It's giving them credit. And it's spending time with them. You know, one of the things that my, when my coach was talking to me about this whole notion of connecting with people better, we put together a plan. And one of the things that we deliberately, intentionally put together this plan. And one of the things I said to him is, I said, I traveled 80% of the time. So I was hardly in the office. And my propensity when I came into the office was to meet with my direct reports because I needed to catch up with them. My CFO, the head, you know, human relations director, et cetera. But one of the things that I realized is that I needed to connect with everybody in the organization. And so I started to go to the cafeteria and whoever was in front of me in the cafeteria, it it became their lucky day. Or perhaps they thought initially it was their unlucky day because the CEO tapped them on the shoulder and said, hey, I'd like to buy you lunch. Can you sit down and talk with me? And I would pick out, and it, it might be Jane in accounting and it might be Dick in IT, and they didn't know me and I didn't know them that well. You know, we had thousands of people working in our company, so it was hard for me to get to know everybody. But I'd sit down with them in the cafeteria and I'd start asking them about their, their wives, you know, their spouses or their, and their kids and their dogs. And I didn't even really want to know about accounting and IT. And that's what I'm talking about. You want to get people to work hard for you or you want to get people to work hard for the company? Show them you care. I mean, it really is that simple. And you know what's interesting? Eventually, we did get talking a little bit about what was going on in the accounting department, in the IT department. Um, Not in a contrived way, but I did want to hear it. And they would just naturally talk about it. Man, did I learn about what was going on in the organization that way. And so it had an incredible benefit to me as well, as, as well as benefiting them, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important that we bring this full circle and tie the business case to it because I can almost hear a lot of people going, yeah, you know, it works for Walt. It won't work for me. Tell us at what point, you know, you said you inherited this culture that was, well, toxic, full of pride and fear. People weren't cared for, et cetera. At what point did you see some noticeable changes by implementing these principles, including financial performance? Yeah, it took time. I'd say we weren't out of the out of the woods for several years. We were out of the woods after two years, and then we were uh, back to being a strong company after three to three and a half. And then we instituted a merger that ultimately even made us a stronger company. And I retired. But th- these things don't happen overnight. People notice leadership over time. They notice it in the little things that you do. I can tell you that uh, one situation that happened to me about honesty that I think really drove it home. I had an administrative assistant and that administrative assistant was doing everything that she could to protect me. And there was a gentleman who was dying to get a hold of me, who, to be honest with you, I I was not dying to talk to. Okay. Um, Let me just keep it that simple. And she took it upon herself to say to this gentleman, Walt is out of town when I wasn't out of town. And Walt wasn't here. Next time he'd call, a Walt's gone. And it was her way of just shooing him so that I didn't have to talk with him. Well, one night she came into my office and said, 
yeah, this guy keeps calling you and don't worry about it. I got you covered. And I said, well, how do you got me covered? And she said, oh, I just told him you're out of town. And I remember looking at her and I said, I just want you to know something. I truly appreciate you protecting me. I really do. But that's dishonest. If we have to revert to being dishonest, then I just need to talk with them and tell them I don't want to talk with them. Unfortunately, that's hard to do, but I need to do that. I never want to put you in a position where you have to lie on my behalf. So that's what I mean. Now, that's a little thing. It only affected she, myself, and him. That's it. No one else saw it. But the problem is that you know little things turn into big things. And I think that you know you have to begin to institute these things on the little things. And over time, they show up as big things. I totally want to affirm you right now because, yes, in a moment of clarity here, there's no magic pill here. I mean, like you said, this is going to take some, a few seasons of change and maybe even filtering out the bad apples under your roof, so to speak. Because I've seen it as a coach and as a consultant. When people come to me, they expect that quick fix. And I say, no, it's not going to happen overnight. This is going to be at least a one to three year process of growing. And like you said, it's a journey. It's a journey, but they don't want to hear that because they want the instant fix. Yeah. So I just want to affirm you that for you, it, yeah, it took a while, but yet so many companies I know aren't willing to invest in the development of their leaders and the growth, et cetera. And so they, they go through these changes and then a merger comes along and eats them up and it's still another culture of fear and pride that takes over and you're just, you're caught in this cycle that never ends. That's right. That's exactly right. And I think you have to be intentional about it. I'm a strong believer in coaching. And unfortunately, sometimes you can't afford that. You know, your company won't buy it for you or whatever it might be, but you almost have to create your own. I mean, I'm a big believer in personal boards of directors. If you can assemble one of three or four people that are good friends of you or, or, or may not even be good friends, but could be mentors for you. I'm a big believer in, you know, sort of peer communication and simply asking people. People don't want to do that because it makes them, they think it makes them look bad. They think it makes them look vulnerable. But if you want to become a better leader, you actually have to get outside of yourself. You really do. And you have to become a bit vulnerable, I think. And, and, and if you do that, I think you'll learn a lot about yourself. Uh, you'll learn a lot about the things that you need to improve on. And so, therefore, I do believe you need to be intentional about it all. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is interesting. The world shut down. Some of us are slowly going back to the office, but I think for the majority, everyone's still at home. So what are the challenges of upholding some of these principles and practices as we all work remotely? Yeah. Look, I think there's a big, huge challenge. (laughs) Let's just talk about this COVID thing. I led through a very difficult time, but it was more of a financial crisis. Today, it's a financial crisis in some companies, but it's actually a social crisis to me. You know, when you have a social crisis, you have people working remotely, you have more dysfunction between people. I think people are worried about their own health. They're worried about their kids' health, their parents' health. They got dogs barking in the background. They got babies crying on Zoom. I mean, this is weird, you know, and this is a real leadership challenge. And I think it starts with managing from the heart. I mean, you got to give people a little bit of a break. I mean, I'm on three corporate boards and the first thing people are talking about is flexibility matters. <laughs> if you can't be flexible as a leader in this time period, you will not lead through effectively. And I think it starts with, and not expecting people to tell you, but it does require leaders to ask, you know, how are you doing? No, how are you doing? Don't tell me just good. How are you doing? Tell me about your issues. And to a certain degree, you might have to become a little bit of a psychologist. I hate to say that, but I think you got to dig deeper today as a leader and really manage with the heart. I think it puts a real emphasis on communication, communicating over and over and over. I think staying in touch with people like you never stayed in touch with people before. And in some of the companies I'm on the board of, fortunately, they're companies of size. So for those of you listening that do work in companies like this, I think sometimes, I mean, there, there are real mental health issues out there. there are, and I think recognizing that as a leader, recognizing when you can't do enough, maybe trying to get some people help, I think is, is also important. So, you know, it's a, it's a lot of that. And I know it's soft stuff and it sounds hard, but really we're in a crucible time. And this is 
where you can best actually help people through leadership. Yeah. In the words of Tom Peter, the famous author, soft is the new hard. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Walt, as we wind down here, I just wanted to ask you to speak directly to the CEO. So what's the first step that they can take to start applying your advice tomorrow? Well, I think the first step is they, they really need to take a look at their own, you know, their, their own leadership. I, think, I personally think the first step is to actually begin to ask. Ask outside. Try to find somebody that you can get coached, that you can actually share your experiences with. And I'm not talking about your spouse. I'm talking about somebody that is, is professional, that can ask all of your people around you, that can do 360-degree evaluation, that can test your personality, find out the types of people that you, you're better working with so that at least you know how you mesh with certain people and you don't mesh with other people. I think learning a lot about yourself is really critically important. I call it in the book measuring. You got to kind of sort of measure where you are. And I think very few people do that. So that's the biggest step I think you can take. Well, we bring it home with two final questions, Walt. And this is an interesting one because I always ask people to get into their heart and share what's really tugging at it right now. But you've been in your heart pretty much the whole episode. But is there anything right now going on in your life in the world around this that is kind of tugging at your heartstrings? Yeah, well, you know, we're in the midst of a election year. So I'd be remiss if I didn't say that I'd see a lack of civility in the marketplace, especially in politics, but also in our society. That's tug at my heart. And along those lines, you know, this lack of civility is pointing, it's judging, it's pointing to the mistakes that people make, you know, especially in social media. You know, this person is that. And I think, you know, some of the greatest leaders in the world are leaders that made mistakes. And we as a society, you make one mistake, and all of a sudden, it, you know, you're not qualified to lead. Well, show me a person who hasn't made mistakes. Show me a person who hasn't screwed up in life. Everybody has. And, you know, some people ask me all the time about role models. One of my greatest, biggest role models is Nelson Mandela. And Nelson Mandela changed the face of apartheid. You know what? He wasn't the coolest dude in the world. He was actually a radical in many of his early years. And there would have been, you know, 50% of people liked him, 50% didn't like him. And he went to jail for 27 years, came out, and he was all about reconciliation. And through reconciliation, realizing that people had different thoughts, he actually changed the face of apartheid, you know? William Wilberforce, who was one of the, you know, I, I, you know literally abolished the slave trade. He wasn't the coolest dude in the world either. He was a bit of a carouser. But ultimately, he committed his life later on to something, that, to being a humanitarian. And so I see people judging each other, pointing at each other, things on social media, just tearing people down. That really bothers me. I have to admit, that lack of civility is bugging me right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that, Walt. Finally, you bring us home with one thing, that one final takeaway that you would like to close us with? Well, I would say this, you know, the final takeaway is it's not about you. Okay, that, that's, that is the final takeaway. Take it's not about the, the destination, it's about the journey. But I, but I want to add to that because and part of that is, is your attitude in a crisis. Especially, I wouldn't add to it except for the fact that we're in a crisis. I was on a call a week or so ago with Ed Bastian, who is the CEO of Delta Airlines. Ed Bastian's revenues went down by roughly 95% between February and March, and they're still down by 70% today. Ed Bastian said, this is the time that we as leaders were anointed for. He said, what an honor and a privilege it is to be leading now. Now, this guy's revenues are down 70%, okay? And so my takeaway from that was, what an attitude. What an unbelievable attitude, right? And I just want your listeners to know that, yeah, we're in a crisis, okay? But, you know, they're leaders. They got to persevere through this. And people are watching them. And their character matters. And their attitude matters. And so I just would say, consider your crucible moment right now an honor and a privilege. Really step up, become the leader you can, 
I know it's not fun. It's never fun. But make a difference in the lives of the people you lead. Make it about them. And I think if you do that, you will, A, build trust in your organization, and B, you will accomplish the destination that you're after. I love that we ended on that note, Walt. It's so inspiring and motivating to hear that. Uh, you know, that's, you and I share the same message anyway, so you speak to my heart. And I know you've spoken to the hearts of others as well. Been a true honor to have you on the show. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining us. Been a true honor for me to be on the show as well, Marcel. Thank you for having me on it. So if people want to connect with you and find out more about you, where can they go? Well, my website is waltrakowicz.com. And I know that's a, that's a handful. So let me, a mouthful, I should say. So let me just spell it. W-A-L-T, of course. R-A-K-O-W-I-C-H.com is my website. I'm also Twitter at at Walt Rakowicz. Won't respell it. I'm on LinkedIn, Walter Rakowicz. So, but I would say through the website would probably be the easiest way of connecting. The book, once again, is called Transfluence. My special thanks to Walt Rakowicz for being our guide and teacher today. And thank you for joining us and spreading the Love and Action movement globally. If you like this episode, I have 80 more like it that I know you're also going to enjoy. Look for it on my website, marcelschwantes.com. And if you or your company would like to sponsor episodes of the Love and Action podcast, let's talk. Reach me on my website or find me on LinkedIn, Marcel Schwantes. Join me next week as I sit down with Dave Smith and Brad Johnson to discuss their brand new book, Good Guys, How Men can be better allies for women in the workplace. Until then, remember, the future of leadership is love in action. Try it and be convinced. Thanks for joining us on the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed this show and want to help get the word out, make sure to subscribe and leave a review.